On this week's edition of New York Now, New York's deadline for a new state budget is coming up. We'll have a few updates from the state capitol and tell you what to expect with this week's panel. And later, what matters to upstaters in this year's budget? We'll discuss. I'm Dan Clark, and this is New York Now. Today, the Senate majority will pass legislation. I will fight like hell for you every single day, like I've always done. Welcome to this week's edition of New York Now. I'm Dan Clark. We now have less than three weeks before the New York State budget is due. But if you were at the Capitol this week, you wouldn't really know it. We have a usual rush of advocates hosting rallies and press conferences on what they want in the budget, but not much else. And that's because both the Senate and the Assembly were busy putting together their one-house budgets. Those are basically a rebuttal to Hochul's plan, and it's when negotiations actually start. We're expecting both chambers to pass their one-house budgets next week, and that'll give us a better sense of where lawmakers stand on top issues. Governor Kathy Hochul, meanwhile, spent part of the week defending her budget plan, including a change to the state's bail laws that progressives in the legislature don't like. Here's what she said in Rochester this week. We're talking about protecting society in a way that people would think is common sense. And so many members of the legislature have stepped up in support, others have not. And I wanna say it's courageous when someone can stand up and say, I know we need this change. I know it's hard, but I also know that it has to happen. And let's start there with this week's panel. Josh Solomon is from the TU and Rebecca Lewis is from City and State. Thank you both for being here. So, Josh, on the bail reform issue, this has been something that we've just been ping-ponging back and forth for the past few years. Do you have a sense that it will be a big issue again this year in the budget right now? It, Governor Hochul has this proposal that we just mentioned before to take out the least restrictive means standard for judges to use for certain charges. So we're, what's your sense on that right now? I think the best example of it is when she was in Rochester, she had Senator Cooney there who was backing her proposal. Then later in the day, he told the New York Post that he wasn't necessarily backing her proposal. Oh. <laughs> and Oops. so, uh, and where it's left right now, it's uh, a little confusing. And I think that's an indication that Senate Democrats may not have an appetite for it. Governor wants it. It may be one of those pieces that we're hearing about horse trading in the final hour. Right, that's what I was thinking. And I'm thinking if they circle back to the judicial training aspect of it, I know that was a big topic in the public protection budget hearing just a few weeks back. So that'd be interesting to see because when, when they were doing it in 2019, when they were doing bail, um, the very few reporters were covering the actual negotiations part of it. And I just remember it being so complicated at the time. And I mean, that was, that was the first bail law. It wasn't the amendment. So I guess maybe the amendments will be easier. Um, but that's something that, that we're watching, obviously. Rebecca, I want to turn to you. Um, what are you watching the next few weeks? I feel like this is a budget that has a lot of smaller issues, maybe a few big issues, but I'm curious about what you're looking at. Uh, you know, just from my own coverage, uh, good cause eviction is a big one, uh, comes up pretty consistently. A uh, bunch of local uh, elected officials just put out a letter calling on the governor and Andre Stewart-Cousins and uh, Carl Hasty to support it at a statewide level because it's all the local laws are getting struck down with judges saying got to do it at the state level. Right. Um, so that continues to be a, a big issue for a lot of lawmakers. 
the MTA is another big issue. It's, it's an issue for the governor, and everyone's on different sides. The governor wants the city to pay for it, the mayor, uh, New York City, to pay for it, Mayor Adams doesn't want to pay for it. The legislators want to tax the rich and make buses free. So everyone's on different sides. And the, the MTA needs money. The MTA is such a, a complicated issue because I feel like people outside of the MTA service zone do not care about the MTA. Like I live in Albany, I care about the MTA because I am doing this job. But if I did not, if I was not doing this job, I wouldn't care about the MTA. And I'm wondering if that changes the dynamics of the conversations that people are happening about that. What do you think? You know, I am born, born and raised downstate. Yeah. Uh, took commuter rail, live in New York City. I, I, it's so hard for me to tell because the MTA is, is, is everything. Yeah. The MTA is everything. If, if, if it's, you know, if, if the LIRR is, is striking, you're not getting to work. Yeah. If uh, the trains aren't running, you know, you, you can't get to, if you're in the outer birds, you can't get, you can't get into Manhattan. Uh, you know, I can't wrap my mind around people like you who <laughs> people like you who who don't have to worry about the MTA. But it's it's maybe you know it's always come back to, to upstate versus downstate issues, uh, uh, and you really don't get much more downstate issues than the MTA, especially when the first thing that someone will probably think of the MTA is New York City and the subways. Right. And if you live in Albany. What do you care? Right, exactly. But I mean, on a grander scale, I should say that people outside of the service zone should care. <laughs> because for one, the money that you're going towards the MTA, you're either have to raise it somehow, and that could affect people upstate, or you have to cut from somewhere else, and that could affect people upstate. So it's something that people should watch. And also, not to mention that the MTA is literally the lifeblood of New York City. And if it failed, or continues to fail, I should say, um, the economy of the city just can't grow and recover. So super duper important. Um, Josh, turning back to you, besides the bail reform issue, what are you watching over the next, these Just few weeks? Just one other piece on MTA is sure. that it's it's so much tied to the, the controversial element of the governor's housing plan. And I yeah. think that that is what she has pitched to us as her top issue. And that's what's going to end up being a lot of probably the negotiations of, well, I want to keep this intact. So what about this and what about that? And maybe with bail, we're going to talk about housing, housing vouchers and, and additional money for that. Maybe we'll give you a little of this for a little of that. Yeah. And we saw the governor being willing to do some horse trading last year, including with the Buffalo Bills Stadium. So I'm curious about what kind of last minute developments happen on that budget. And how housing plays into it. That's a really good point because as our viewers may remember last year, the, the bail issue really didn't pop up significantly until I think two, maybe one week before the budget. Or maybe I'm thinking of the Buffalo Bills Stadium that came up days before the budget. The, the bills like it the governor said it was because of the timing with the NFL and when everything came into line, which just happened to be the week before the budget that she then announced, we've struck a deal and this is how much money we're going to give. And then the lawmakers said, what? <laughs> we're giving a billion dollars for what? Yeah. Where is that coming from the budget? Haven't we just been negotiating for a billion dollars for childcare, healthcare? Right. You know, and, and so that played a last minute role in it that she hadn't tipped that hand earlier. But it should be noted that the lawmakers eventually went along with it. They, they were very surprised, but acquiesced to the, to the deal in some form of that. So 
What I'm really looking at right now in Albany is the power dynamics between the governor and the legislature. Under Andrew Cuomo, there was a lot of power for the governor in the budget process, and there still is that statutory power for the governor and the precedent there. But I'm wondering, as as things move forward, as the far left flank of the legislature continues to grow, if that dynamic changes. Um, Josh, what do you think about that? I think that the what we're seeing from Senate Democrats so far is that they're aware of kind of the, the power that they have at the moment, both after the rejection of Justice LaSalle, mm -hmm. they really flex that power. And they'll, they're quick to tell you that, hey, we outperformed the governor on the ballot. Yeah, We were down ballot and we did better than her through and through. And so, and, and she didn't necessarily stump for us. And so we don't necessarily need to listen to what her priorities are, we can listen to what our constituents' priorities are. So I think they're going to try to have some type of big show of their power. I think so too, and, and you're absolutely right that some of them were very upset that the governor did not do more to campaign for the state Senate Democrats in particular, or visit region, regions of the state where there were competitive races, like in the lower Hudson Valley with former state Senator Elijah Reichland Melnick. I mean, that's a perfect example there. Hogel didn't go into Rockland County, and he blamed his loss basically on that. <laughs> um, so that's interesting. Uh, we have about a minute left, Rebecca. I want to give you the last word. Um, as we're looking over these next few weeks, there have been some shakeups in the Hochul administration. This is year two. As we're looking at how they are doing this process, how do you view that right now? Does it seem to be, uh, you know, the train's a little bit more on the tracks this year or not? It's it's so hard to say. Going back just to, about the relationship between the governor and the legislature, yeah. uh, this is her first like real year as governor. You know, she's been elected. She's got four years. She doesn't have to worry about a re-election, and she starts it with what turned out to largely be a pointless fight over uh, Justice LaSalle uh, for chief judge, and it leaves a lot of people questioning sort of. Who's giving her this advice? Um, is this her decision-making? Is this decision-making from people in her administration that she's listening to? And seeing sort of the shakeups happening in her administration, you know, especially at such a crucial time as less than a month before the budget, right. it leads to more questions of, you know, what's going on on the second floor, behind those closed doors? Does she have reliable people who are giving her good, good advice, or is it still sort of figuring out uh, how to be the governor of New York, which is fair, but, you know, she's still newly elected, but she's been doing it for, well, close to two years now. Uh, it, it certainly doesn't inspire the most amount of confidence, uh, especially from other officials in the Capitol. Yeah, I mean, I, I hear a lot of the same things. So I guess we'll see how that shakes out in the next couple of weeks. Rebecca Lewis from City and State, Josh Solomon from the TU, thank you both so much for being here. I appreciate it. All right, staying at the Capitol now, we told you last week about Governor Hochul's proposal to raise taxes on cigarettes and ban menthol-flavored tobacco. Just a quick recap that under that proposal, the tax on a pack of cigarettes would go up a dollar to five thirty-five. And last week, we told you about how convenience stores are against that because it would cut into their revenue. This week, we spoke to supporters of Hochul's proposal. Like Hochul, they say that raising the cigarette tax and banning menthol will get more people to stop smoking. And that has worked before. 
in New York. That was two decades ago, when New York City increased the local tax on cigarettes. At the time, the tax had gone from $0.08 cents per pack to $1.50. And at the same time, the state had also banned smoking in the workplace. So by 2004, according to the U.S. CDC, nearly 200,000 people in New York City had stopped smoking. And according to a survey done by the city health department, the higher tax was a big part of that. Nearly half of those asked, about 45%, said it was the higher tax that drove them to quit, or at least try. And supporters say Hochul's proposal would do the same and reverse decades of targeting toward black New Yorkers. Shaniqua Charles is one of those supporters. She lost her mother to smoking-related illness. We know that it's intentional. We know that you are targeting us. We know that you don't mean us any good. So this is why today, here on these property and this location in Albany, we are saying that we're not going to take it anymore. We hope that you all have the courage to stand up. More on that in the coming weeks as the state budget comes together. But first, we've told you a lot about what matters to New York City in this year's state budget. And that's because some of the big controversial issues this year affect New York City more than the rest of the state, like how Governor Hochul and lawmakers are working on new funding for the MTA, or how charter schools want to expand in New York City. And those issues matter upstate as well, just in different ways. But as longtime Capitol watchers know, when New York City issues come up, they have a habit of dominating the conversation. And sometimes that can leave upstaters feeling shortchanged. So this week, we wanted to speak to someone about what matters to upstaters in this year's state budget. And for that, we turned to Justin Wilcox, who leads Upstate United, an advocacy group for issues upstate. Take a look. Justin, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Anytime. So I want to talk to you about what upstaters want in this year's legislative session. I think that you have your finger on the pulse of what upstaters are looking for this year, more than a lot of people. Tell me what they're looking for. Yeah, you know, uh, probably, uh, you know, what we've seen in the Siena poll, um, upstaters really care about the cost of living. Um, and, and that's frankly the same for our businesses in upstate New York. It's the cost of doing business in, in the state. So, you know, really uh, the concerns that I'm hearing about from taxpayers, from uh, residents, uh, you know, from businesses, uh, from employees and employers, it's really the same. It's the cost of living in New York and the cost of doing business in New York. You know, one issue that New Yorkers are facing right now with inflation is kind of this issue of where wages are. The governor has a proposal yeah. in her state of the state and the state budget this year to tie the minimum wage to inflation moving forward, which means that basically as inflation goes up, the minimum wage would go up with it. Uh, what do you think about that proposal? How would it affect upstaters? Yeah, look, um, you know, let me just say, the minimum wage proposal, the proposal to increase minimum wage, which is really close to $15 uh, across the state. Uh, we're still a little bit behind in upstate New York. I think we're at like 1425. Uh, the rest of the state is at 15. You know, at a time when we are facing inflation, um, the, the Federal Reserve to combat that's trying to take money out of the economy, right? And what we're doing in New York to combat inflation right, it, it's negative effects is to add money into the economy, right, to put more money in people's hands and to do that through employers who are going to be forced 
to increase their prices, right? So the problem is this. Um, it's not a good policy tool to even address what it is that policymakers say they're addressing, right? So often we hear that we need uh, to use the minimum wage as a policy tool to address poverty. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the minimum wage is a very blunt tool to do that, right? Because it's oftentimes going into households uh, that live well above poverty, right? Uh, there's much better policy tool that, uh, you know, most economists would say does work to fight inflation. I'm sorry, not inflation, but poverty, um, you know, and not and not add to inflation. And that's the earned income tax credit, right? Mm. That's That's going to go directly into the hands of those who need it. We know that it's going to go to uh, certain, uh, you know, households that have certain levels of income. So it's a precise uh, tool to address, to address poverty. So you think that would be more effective than raising the minimum wage and tying it to inflation, just having uh, a tax credit instead? Would that be enough, you think, to kind of make people whole? Or would you like to see more than that? Well, look, in terms of making people whole, that's going to be really difficult, right? Because again, there's inflationary pressures uh, here at play. But if you're really trying to address poverty, you should probably try to get more hands, more money into the hands uh, of those who are in poverty, right? Um, not just more money into the hands of people currently making minimum wage. Uh, they're not the same. And I also have to point out, in talking to a lot of not-for-profits, this is going to actually squeeze them as well, right? Because a lot of the folks that work for not-for-profit agencies do make around the minimum wage. And, uh, you know, what's going to happen is these not-for-profits are going to be forced to constrain their costs uh, in one way or another, either that by laying off employees or making folks part-time. So as, as we look, as before we were uh, recording this interview, we were talking about manufacturers in New York and kind of the different industries that have left New York and maybe not able to grow here. We were, we were talking before about individuals in terms of the minimum wage, a little bit about businesses. When we talk about those businesses that don't seem to be able to make a lot of progress here, what do you think the state needs to do about that? Well, look, I would like to put this conversation in some context. Um, you know, being from sure. Rochester, New York, I have seen Kodak, Eastman Kodak, go from 62,000 employees in the Rochester area to 1,300. Uh, that's a significant change. Um, again, there's a lot of factors that play into that. It's simply not simply just being here in New York that led to that kind of decrease, but it's sort of the environment that we're facing, right? It's globalization. It's the fact that a lot of our companies are facing competitors with lower costs. Um, so, you know, New York businesses are facing a, a ton of uh, cost increases, whether it's unemployment insurance, whether it's minimum wage uh, or, you know, whether we're talking about some of the impacts of the CLCPA, the, the Climate Leadership Community Protection Act. Um, you know, we just recently saw the, um, you know, uh, PSC, Public Service Commission, uh, approve in the last couple of weeks a huge uh, increase on people's bills. Um, you were going to see uh, increases between, I believe, anywhere from 3 to 16% in upstate New York. Uh, the 16% uh, is really targeted at industrial users of, of energy. Um, that's going to make it really tough for folks and, and for businesses uh, to pay those bills. And what we're likely to see 
as a result of that uh, increased uh, you know, pressure on, on the business is either those prices are going to get passed along to consumers, right? It's the cumulative effect of all of these things that is really difficult for New Yorkers. Do you think the burden in terms of the PSC vote, when we're looking at utilities and things like that, do you think the burden in helping consumers and ratepayers, do you think that lies with the PSC or is it with these utility companies? I mean, as I'm looking at my national grid bill, I just see it keep on going up and up and up. And genuinely, I could not tell you if that is a problem with national grid or the PSC. And that's a great question, Dan. And I'm glad you asked it because the fact is, you know, the PSC and utilities had no choice but to address, um, you know, the transmission lines and the, and, the, and, the, and the need to upgrade transmission in order to comply with the CLCPA. So what we have is the PSC acting uh, as a de facto taxing authority, and it leads people to get upset with the PSC and get upset with the utilities when in fact this is 100% the result of the legislature and uh, their unwillingness to take responsibility for their actions. It's really interesting and I'm sure it's an issue that a lot of New Yorkers are interested, especially in the next couple of years as we see the state's Climate Action Council scoping plan uh, start to take effect. Uh, Justin Wilcox from Upstate United, thank you so much. Thank you. And there are plenty of other issues for upstaters to look out for in the coming weeks as well. Issues like education aid and infrastructure will also be part of the state budget. More on that over the next few weeks. But turning now to New York by the numbers, where we tell you about something out of Albany using a number. This week, that number is 38. Remember that. And we're actually using that number to follow up on a segment from a few weeks ago. Long story short, three years ago, the state created a plan for cutting costs in Medicaid. And part of that plan that takes effect April 1st would change how Medicaid pays for prescription drugs. New York is moving that to a fee-for-service model called NYRX. But what does that even mean? Basically, it allows the state to directly negotiate drug prices. And that could save the state money, which is the whole point of the change. It would also allow Medicaid recipients to use more pharmacies, which is super important in rural areas where healthcare can be really hard to find. And pharmacists want the change because allowing the state to negotiate drug prices directly rather than going through so-called pharmacy benefit managers will actually put more money in their pockets through higher reimbursement rates. That brings us to the number 38. Steve Moore is a pharmacist from Plattsburgh who says the Medicaid reimbursement rates under the current model just don't cut it. So on average, we're getting a 50 cent dispensing fee. Um, I had a prescription the other day that was reimbursed at 38 cents total. 30 day supply of medication for a patient's heart medication and it was 38 cents. So it, it's tough, you know, we've got a rising minimum wage. And you know, do you really want your pharmacy employees to be minimum wage employees? But one side effect of the change that we told you about a few weeks ago is that it would cut off certain safety net funding for community health organizations in a federal program called 340B. And the state has said they'll help those groups bridge that gap, but that's not guaranteed. So those groups want to stop the change. We'll know more when the state budget is approved, hopefully at the end of March. But staying now at the state capitol, Advocates are pushing a shift in state government that they say would drive more than $2 billion in federal funding into the state's coffers. 
That would happen through something called data matching. Right now, New York administers certain federal safety net programs and approves people based on eligibility. Among those programs are the Medicare Savings Program, the Home Energy Assistance Program, and SNAP, or food stamps. And the thing about these programs is that the eligibility requirements are pretty similar across the board. So if you qualify for one of them, you may very well qualify for the others as well. But a lot of people don't know that. So a coalition of groups led by the AARP are calling on the state to do something called data matching. With that, basically, if someone's in one of these programs, advocates say, the state could proactively see if they qualify for the other ones and let them know. Beth Finkel is the New York State Director at AARP. Why aren't we accessing benefits to all people, older adults who are eligible? The short answer is we can and we should. Tapping this federal aid would not only help hundreds of thousands of low and middle income New Yorkers, but would also drive more money through economic stimulus into the state coffers and to help us address other state budget needs. And again, that would be federal funding, not state. In a statement, the Hochul administration said, quote, New Yorkers can currently apply for multiple benefits, including public assistance, SNAP, Medicaid, child care, and other services by completing one application. Federal regulations strictly limit how information on SNAP recipients can be shared with other programs, but we remain committed to seeking ways to expand access to all benefits by increasing coordination and data sharing among programs. End quote. And a spokesperson for the State Department of Health said they're reviewing the proposal. We'll let you know if anything changes. And thank you to everyone who signed up for our new newsletter. We hit our goal last month, but we want to keep that momentum going. And we hope you'll help us if you haven't already. With our newsletter, you'll get a short roundup of the week's top stories and early access to every week's show before it airs. Sign up at newsletter.nynow.org. But that does it for this week. Thanks for watching this week's New York Now. Have a great week and be well. Funding for New York Now is provided by WNET.